Bibles and turn there where Pastor Ray was reading, please, to Exodus chapter 2. And if you're physically able, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word together. So two weeks ago, you may or may not remember, we did uh, say, so, so what happened after Joseph? Of course, we were for a good little while in Genesis 37 through 50, which is Joseph. And now we just briefly look at Moses, the early years, Moses, the early years. And that takes us into the early part of the book of Exodus. This is a wonderful place, actually, as it's been said before, to preach the gospel according to Moses. Uh, Moses is not our ultimate redeemer at all. But it is a great place as you think about that event and the book that takes the name of Exodus. And so let's think about those things. Uh, we did look at this passage that I'm about to read a couple of weeks ago, but let's look at this again. Because there's a sense in which I want us to notice chapters 1 and 2 today. Exodus chapters 1 and 2 with a special focus on chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Verse 7 of Exodus chapter 2. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, as we're still on our feet for just a moment, let me go ahead and give you the title this morning. I said we want to emphasize Exodus chapter 2, but also see how chapters 1 and 2 go together. We want to see this this morning. Moses, spurning sin, Looking to the reward, seeing him who is invisible. A little bit longer title this morning. Moses, spurning sin, looking to the reward, seeing him who is invisible. I'd love for you to look with me after I pray at Matthew chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there, 
I won't make you flip a ton this morning, but I'd love for you to look with me in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to pray while we're standing and then we can look at that. Let's pray together. It's good to be with you this morning. Lord, we look to You. We thank You and we think of the words that Pastor James just read from Psalm 91. Lord, we think of Psalm 131, which speaks in in a very short chapter of the Bible in Psalm 131 about humility, true humility. And Lord, we do want to bow before You this morning. We ask, Father, for Your help in our members' meeting after the service. Lord, help us to say and to practically recognize that You are the, the true leader of our church. We would want it no other way. We thank You for the elders and the deacons and all the members. Lord, we submit to You, King Jesus, as we've been singing this morning. But Father, not only the members meeting, or we could mention Wednesday night, but Lord, now we pray for this time of service and for this time in Your Word. Lord, would You speak to us? We ask, or we confess our belief in the Holy Spirit. Would You help us and speak to us now that we indeed may see Jesus? And we pray in His name. Amen. You can be seated. Let me give that to you one more time. Moses, spurning sin, looking to the reward, seeing Him who is invisible. Would you glance with me at Matthew chapter 2? Hopefully you're there. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. It is the Christmas season, and these two passages go very well together. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Matthew 2.16 And before we land back in Exodus 2, let's stay here for a few minutes. Matthew 2. Well, friends, the need of the hour today, the need of the hour is men. Is that true? Is that true that the need of the hour is men? Have you ever heard of something that's become much more talked about in recent years, something called toxic masculinity? Have you heard of that phrase? Toxic masculinity? The Atlantic picked this up a few years ago, and here's what they said. Over the past several years, toxic masculinity has become a catch-all explanation for male violence and sexism. The appeal of the term, which distinguishes toxic traits such as aggression and self-entitlement from healthy masculinity, has grown to the point where Gillette, you know, the best a man can get, Gillette invoked it last month, this is a few years ago, 
in a viral advertisement against bullying and sexual harassment. An ad against bullying and sexual harassment. Around the same time, the American Psychological Association introduced new guidelines for therapists working with boys and men, therapists working with boys and men, warning that extreme forms of certain traditional masculine traits are linked to aggression, misogyny, and negative health outcomes. So toxic masculinity. The article, by the way, of this uh, Atlantic article, or the title, I'm sorry, of this article that you can find at Atlantic.com is entitled this, The Problem with a Fight Against Toxic Masculinity. And they say the popular term points toward very real problems of male violence and sexism, but it risks misrepresenting what actually causes them. So the Atlantic, you might say, you might say is taking a, a middle road and saying, yes, but no. Well, again, my question that I started with is, or my statement rather, is that the need of the hour is for men. We're going to see this in the story today, but again, the question is, is that true? Is that, is that accurate? Look again at Matthew chapter 2. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, which we read a moment ago. And I want to draw a line. I want to make a connection from verse 16 of Matthew 2 back to Exodus chapters 1 and 2. It says there again, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Stay in Matthew chapter 2. And like I said, I want to I want to draw a line. I want to make a connection back to Exodus 1 and 2 where it says, and just listen to this, where it says in Exodus 1.16, uh, Pharaoh speaking to the midwives, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Little did he know that it would be the girls and the women of Israel who in an ironic twist of fate, twist of fate my foot, who in an ironic twist of fate, it would be the daughters that he let live. You see? Who would be used in the providence of God as a major component in God redeeming His people. Nevertheless, Again, I, I want to make that connection. I hope you see it's very plain. It's a, it's, a, it's a Christmas connection, if you will. Let me just read the context before we leave Matthew 2. Let me read this story. Matthew 2.13. Look at it with me. Matthew 2.13. There are many parallels here. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, Matthew 2.13, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. 
By the way, we're just doing two main things this morning. Just two big, big ideas. We're just looking to see what the Bible says about our story. And then we're looking at the story itself. That's the two things we're doing this morning. So this part that we're doing right now, Matthew 2, we're looking to see what the Bible says about our story today. And then we're going to look at the story itself. Really simple. We've read verse 16. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, Matthew 2.19, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. In just a minute, we want to look at our, the story itself. Our particular story, Exodus 1 and 2. But what does the Bible say about our story? We want to make this connection. And I started to say this a couple of weeks ago, but let me remind you again. Just listen to this. Hear these connections. Thinking specifically about our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus lives in Egypt. And in Exodus 1 and 2, Moses lives in Egypt. Okay? In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus has an arch enemy who is Herod. In Exodus 1 and 2, Moses has an arch enemy who is Pharaoh. In Matthew chapter 2, as we think about Jesus, Herod perceives Jesus to be a threat. In Exodus 1 and 2, Pharaoh perceives the Israelites to be a threat. In Matthew chapter 2, Herod attempts to kill Jewish boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem. In Exodus 1 and 2, Pharaoh attempts to kill all male Hebrew babies in Egypt. The Lord Jesus Christ is the true and ultimate fulfillment of Israel. It's really fascinating when you look at the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, and you see occurring in the life of Jesus so many things that occurred in the life of Israel. And all of this, friends, all of this leads Benjamin Glad to say this, Jesus' ministry actually always stays on this Moses type of pattern. He said it really never stops. The ministry of Jesus, and again, we're kind of looking at Christmas here in Matthew chapter 2, right? The Christmas story. His, his ministry, not just at his birth, not just at the birth of Jesus, but continuing on, follows this Moses pattern. How so? He says this, Jesus will, in the shadow of Moses, lead his people out of bondage. Praise God. Jesus will lead his people out of a much greater bondage. Not that the Moses' people's bondage was not real. It was real. Just like Moses, Jesus will ensure their arrival to a new mountain sanctuary. Moses takes them to a mountain. Jesus takes them to a mountain. Think the Sermon on the Mount. Just like Moses, Jesus will mediate a new covenant. We might think about, again, the Sermon on the Mount, even what we might call the law of Christ. Exodus chapter 1 and 2. We're done there. We're done at Matthew 2. Exodus 1 and 2. Our two big things. What does the Bible have to say about our specific story this morning? And then the story itself. So now we're looking at the story itself. 
We're looking at the story itself, but we don't want to uh, totally leave what the Bible says. I, uh, I read some awesome commentary on Exodus 1 and 2 in preparation. And the great thing about this is that the number one and two commentaries that I read were the Bible. So the Bible interprets the Bible. And we have not yet at all, none of us, certainly myself included, we have not yet come close to plunging the depths of the Bible. And uh, in the deep end of the swimming pool of the Bible, you don't have to be afraid of. It's Jesus Christ. Because in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him. You don't have to be afraid of the deep end of the Bible. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we interpret it appropriately, and as we understand it correctly, it all points to Him. It all points to Him. Notice this. Notice this this morning. You say, okay, you haven't, you left me hanging. Why did you, why did you bring up toxic masculinity? What's that? You got a, you got a hobby horse you want to go to this morning? Are you, are you looking for men to be more in power? Are you looking to put down women or something? No, no, no. Let's talk about a little bit more of those types of things this morning. And so I want you to notice, um, I've given you the kind of the big headings. Now we're focusing on our story. Our story. First of all, notice the bookends of our story in Exodus 1 and 2. Would you notice the bookends? Look at the very end of our passage this morning. And the very end of our passage would be the last three verses of Exodus chapter 2. The last three verses, 23 through 25 of Exodus chapter 2. The second book of the Bible. During those many days, Exodus 2.23, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Are you looking at that with me, 2.24? And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In other words, don't forget the story of Genesis. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And that's the closing bookend, but the opening one is in 1, 1 through 7. So we look at this intentionally. 2, 23 through 25, and then 1, 1 through 7. Please look at this. 1, 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Don't ever... Don't ever forget Genesis. We're in a new book, but it's still the same story. Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, right? And what does it say? The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, middle of verse 7, and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now notice this, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not... No, Joseph. Remember 2.23? Remember 2.23? During those many days, the king of Egypt died. But in chapter 1, we were still kind of talking about the story of Joseph, 
But we're not talking about Joseph's Pharaoh. We're not talking about Joseph's king, who Joseph was the prime minister. He was the second in command, right? No, verse 8 again, there arose, this is very important, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now we have looked at already uh, the beginning of chapter 2 and, and chapter 1, and we've learned that we don't see this man's name until chapter 2, verse 10, and he's called Moses. He's given that name by who? By Pharaoh's daughter. Irony of irony. It's not irony, it's providence. Providence, that Pharaoh, the same one who said, eliminate these, eliminate the boys, the daughters can be kept alive. Why did Pharaoh say that, friends? Why did he say that? Because in an honorable society, the women do not fight in wars. It was the men who fight and go to battle. And so Pharaoh did not want the Hebrew boys growing up to be men joining another army and fighting against him. That's a big part of the reason why he wanted to exterminate them. So that there would only be girls who would not fight in battle, which is a good thing, and, and the men would be non-existent, the next generation would be non-existent, and therefore they couldn't, they were already so growing by leaps and bounds, they multiplied and they kept putting them down, but they kept growing and he said, this is a threat. Well, God raises up Moses, and we notice the prominence. We notice the prominence that these women play. All of these women play in the providential working of God for the salvation of his people. And there's the Hebrew midwives. And there's Moses' mother. And there's Pharaoh's daughter. And there's Moses' sister. And it's just this emphasis on these women. None of them were perfect. All of them were sinners. Women are sinners. But we see here this highlight here. At the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 of this focus on women, but I want you to look. Look with me at verse 11 of chapter 2. And I want you to see this. Moses, zealous. Moses, zealous. Are you taking notes on paper or in your mind? I don't care if you take them on paper. Who cares about that? That's not important. Just listen. Just listen. And test what I say by the Word of God and just engage with the Word of God. Will you do that with God's help? Chapter 2, verse 11. Moses zealous. You with me? Moses zealous. One day, as Pastor Ray read, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now what's going on in Exodus 2, 11? I'll tell you what's going on uh, from my favorite commentary, which is the Bible. We learn from the Bible at, in another place that Moses is 40 years old. Uh, this encouraged me because in another place, he's referred to as a young man. And I crossed the threshold of 40 not too long ago. And uh, just to think that he's called in the Bible a young man at age 40, that's awesome. But we learn by the commentary, which is the Bible, because what? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. I'll tell you, Acts 7, Acts 7. Don't look at it now, but man, it's a super commentary. What's a co you know what a commentary is, of course. It's just a book that helps to explain this particular part of the Bible. Well, it says one day when Moses had grown up, he's been in Pharaoh's house for 40 years, right? He's 40 years old. Why did he do this? Why, verse 11? Look at it again. 
What's going on here? Well, again, our number one commentary, which is the Bible said it, it came into his heart. He wanted to go to see his people. Somehow he knew that his people were not his adopted family, which was the Egyptians. Somehow he knew that his true people, according to the flesh, were the Hebrews. And so he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw, what did he see? He saw an Egyptian, boys and girls, get this picture in your mind. You have a, a sheet maybe that you got from the foyer where you're, maybe you're taking notes. And you get this picture. He saw an Egyptian. That's his adopted family. He is Egyptian, right? Moses is Egyptian, but not by birth. He's Hebrew by birth. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Verse 12. He looked this way and that. Uh, when you look this way and that, are you about to do something good or bad? <laughs> Who's looking, right? He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's do some Hebrew exegesis here and find out that just means he knocked the guy on the head and killed him, right? He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Again, when you hide somebody in the sand, when you hide the evidence, and when you begin by looking this way and that, are you doing something good or bad? The answer, obviously, is self-evident. Verse 13. Remember, we're thinking about Moses zealous. Okay. When he went out the next day, behold, look, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who's he? The Hebrew man. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. I, I, I thought it was a secret. I, I slept pretty well. I came out this morning to, to do what I did yesterday. And I yeah, I've been thinking about the fact that I murdered a man. I killed a man, but... You know, I got some sleep. I buried the man, but apparently it's not as secret as I thought. Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. What are we thinking about here? We're thinking about Moses zealous. Let me just make a very clear observation that unfortunately our society is not as clear on. I don't mean to make a just a random joke, but Moses was a man, right? Moses was a man and he was zealous. That's the first thing that I'm pointing out in our story. In our story today, the first thing I'm pointing out, Moses zealous, right? You, we know what that word zeal means. It's said of Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me, right? We all know what the word zeal or zealous means. We see a picture here of Moses being zealous. If we keep reading, which we'll do in just a, in just a minute or two, we're, we will continue to see the same thing. Moses was zealous, but let me add something here. Moses was zealous, and I think we can say foolish. Do you see? Right? Do you see the story? Or if you're uncomfortable calling him foolish, you know, don't call anybody a fool. He acted foolishly. At least we can say that, right? Moses acted foolishly. He was zealous and foolish. Why do I say that? Well, because in his zeal, he was uh, impetuous. In his zeal, 
Maybe he was thinking. Maybe he, was, maybe he had the clear consciousness in his mind, I am going to be used of God. Maybe this is what he's thinking. You know, something good. God's going to use me to deliver my people. And so this is okay, right? Like we looked in chapter one, you know, it's okay to tell a lie. Well, actually, no, it's not. And, and this is okay. Well, no, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's impetuous. It's foolish. Moses is a man. He has zeal. And in this case, he acts foolishly. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Second thing I want to point out from our story is Moses righteous. Moses righteous. This is in verses 16 through 22. Verses 16 through 22. Look at this with me. We haven't read this yet. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. We need to go back to verse 15 for just a minute. Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. So he's gone to this land of Midian, right? Apparently people know what I did. Well, yeah, Pharaoh found out. Pharaoh's like, this guy's not going to live. We're going to kill him. Moses flees. He's going on this journey. This priest of Midian had seven daughters. Verse 16 again, they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. Remember this thing here, Moses righteous. Moses acting righteously. Moses acting righteously. Verse 18, when they came home to their father, Raul, he said, who's, who's Raul? He's the priest of Midian, right? How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian. Oh, that's interesting, right? Verse 19, an Egyptian. Moses was not Egyptian by birth. Apparently something by his physical appearance, right? Gave them the clue that he was, in fact, an Egyptian, which he was formally by adoption. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, to these seven young ladies, then where is he? We need to be mindful of hospitality today. Of course, in this society, it was, it was uh, a given. Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses doesn't know he's going to get a meal and he's going to get a wife. Young men, pay attention. He's getting bread and a bride. Verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man. He's had a major life change. He's not just had a midlife crisis. He's been exiled in a sense, in a very real sense, right? Think about this. Look, look, think about this. His people have rejected him. Who are his people? He's an Egyptian. He is an Egyptian by adoption. And Pharaoh, whose very daughter had taken Moses. How did Pharaoh feel about that? We're not told. But Pharaoh is out to kill Moses. His people, the Egyptians, and his people, the Hebrews, do not want him. Do you see? His people by birth, the Hebrews, do not want him. Why do I say that? You're just because of the text. The Hebrew men, the Hebrew man singular, 
said, who made you a ruler and judge over this? And remember what Moses is thinking probably. God's going to use me to deliver my people. In fact, that's what the commentary, the commentary, the Bible says. The Bible says that Moses was thinking they will understand that God's going to use me to deliver them. They did not understand. They didn't understand, by the way, by the way, Luke in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's speech, the point that he's making when he makes the point about Moses is he says, you're no different today. Israel, you're no different today. You reject God's people. And the climax of that is that you've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the early stage of that, the early stage is Moses is rejected by the Egyptians. He's got no home. He's got no family. He's in exile. Get the picture here. His own people according to birth. Who, who do you think you are? <laughs> I mean, you killed that guy yesterday. Are you going to judge between us now? I don't think so. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah, verse 21. And we talked on Wednesday night about racial discrimination and things like intermarriage and ethnicity. She gave birth to a son. He called his name Gershon. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The first thing is Moses zealous. And you'll remember that we added to that Moses zealous and foolish. Moses zealous and foolish. The second thing in 16 through 22 is Moses acting righteously. Moses acting righteously. And let me add another thing to that. Not losing his zeal. Listen to me. Everyone, everyone, and maybe men in particular, zeal in itself is certainly not a bad thing. I think maybe we're in low supply of that today in the church of Jesus Christ, perhaps. Zeal in and of itself is certainly not a bad thing. So we started with zeal and folly. He kills this man in a fit of rage, zeal and foolishness. But then we move to righteousness. He acted righteously, but we don't leave zeal behind. Do you see? Righteousness in zeal. So what? So what? Well, one of my teachers from years ago who's helped me a lot said this. Listen to this. If you actually study 16 through 22 and 11 through 15, the structure is remarkably similar. The structure is remarkably similar. There's Moses. There's an issue that arises. Moses intervenes. Moses, the man, Moses, the man with zeal intervenes. Brings about some type of uh, resolution. Somebody in authority figures out what's going on. In one case, it's Pharaoh. In one case, it's the father of the ladies, the priest of Midian. It's, it's actually remarkably similar, the structure of 11 through 14 or 11 through 15 and 16 through 22. Here's what my former teacher says. In this, the text presents the masculine traits of courage and initiative wrongly and then rightly applied. You hear that? The masculine traits of courage and initiative, first of all, we see them wrongly applied, a picture of how they should not be applied, and then a picture of how they should be applied. The masculine traits of courage and initiative. He says, lest you think that the end game of my sermon this morning 
is to put a some great veneer on to toxic masculinity or something. He says this, one may compare to this the character of Christ who was always bold in confronting evil but never reckless. The character of Christ who was always bold in confronting evil but never reckless. The need today is for men. True. True. The need today, the need of the hour is for men. That's true. But let me not stop there. The need of the hour is for Jesus Christ. Kevin DeYoung points this out. And again, we live in a confused society because our hearts are bent on rebellion. Our hearts are wicked apart from Christ. But Kevin DeYoung points out, Jesus was a man, right? And again, let me just say, if in any way you're saying, okay, you're talking a lot about men, don't forget our text this morning, Exodus 1 and 2. It's like, look at the godly examples of these women over and over again. The need of the hour is for Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ and what we call the pastoral epistles, listen to me, says this. There is one mediator, and it's not Moses, by the way. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, of course, the gospel says there in, in Timothy, I believe, it says there's one mediator between God and men. And we know that doesn't mean men exclusively. That means men and women and boys and girls. But hear it again. There is one mediator of a new covenant between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. Moses was, in fact, a mediator. Moses was God's man. Moses was a savior and Moses was a deliverer. He was a mediator of the old covenant, which is passing away, yea, has passed away. But there is a new and eternal covenant in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the gospel? Do you know that there is only one mediator and it's not Mary? It's not Moses? It's not your parents? It's certainly not me or any of the elders. There is, the Bible says, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who, to take in 1 John chapter 2, gave himself for his people as a propitiation for the sins of the world. He died on the cross bearing the wrath of God for you, my friend, for you, for everyone who will ever repent of their sins and trust in him by faith and by faith alone. As I prayed earlier, he bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. No, the need of the hour, the need of the hour is for Jesus Christ and for men who totally and gladly follow him. The need of the hour is for Jesus Christ and for men who totally and gladly follow him. And don't check your zeal at the door, right? Zeal is a good thing when it's with knowledge. Zeal for your house will consume me. The character of Christ, I'll say it again. As I quote again, he was always bold and confronting evil, but never reckless. Peter, Peter, they're, they're there in the garden. They're on the eve of the crucifixion. Get the picture. And Peter, what does he do with Malchus? He cuts the man's ear off. Peter is zealous 
zeal in itself is not a bad thing. Peter whacks the man's ear off and Jesus says, no. But, but in the temple, what does Jesus do? We see two times, right? He cleanses the temple. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. My father's house is a house of prayer. John chapter 2. Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. No, he's always bold in confronting evil. Jesus is the man that we all need to look to. To use the old Latin phrase, the man par excellence. He is the man. Moses zealous. Moses righteous. Jesus and Moses. Jesus and Moses and the life of faith. What's going through Moses' mind? On the one hand, he goes and he kills an Egyptian. On the other hand, he nobly, and remember he gets a wife out of this, he helps the young ladies, the seven of them, get water, and he ends up getting bread and a bride. And so what's going through his mind? Here's what's going through Moses' mind. He chose, listen to me, he chose. That's not a bad word. All of you listen. He chose, he intentionally made a choice by the grace of God. Yes, by the grace of God, he chose not to identify himself with his people by adoption. He chose rather, even though he had 40 years, this sounds like almost like the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he had everything he wanted at his fingertips, what did he do instead? He deliberately chose of his own free will. He went out and he chose to identify with his people by birth. Yes, he killed a man. Yes, he did. But listen, God's grace is, is amazing. Not because he winks at murderers. He doesn't wink at murderers. But Jesus Christ died on the cross bearing the wrath of God in the place of murderers. And so Moses goes and he is choosing. He's choosing not to identify with the wealth and the riches. Instead, he chooses to identify with his people in slavery. Hebrews chapter 11. Please go or listen carefully. Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Hebrews 11.24 By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. If you want a commentary on the passage today, here it is. Hebrews 11, 24-29. Verse 26, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure... Did you hear that? He considered the reproach of Christ. Moses lived way before Christ. Did you know that the book of Jude says that Jesus rescued a people out of Egypt? Did you know that? The book of Jude says Jesus delivered a people out of Egypt. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 says Moses considered the reproach of Christ. How? How? The Bible is fantastic. He considered the reproach of Christ. What does that mean? I don't claim to know all that that means. But don't tell me that Jesus has nothing to do with the Old Testament. Don't tell me that all of the Bible is not for us today. That it's all one Word of God. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for He was looking to the reward. 
By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. You've been very patient. Let me close with this. Listen. Again, that was Hebrews 11 and Acts 7, by the way, Matthew 2. There were two guys. They were friends. One of them went to a Christian school, both high school and college. He went to a Christian school. His parents were big proponents of Christian education, and he was too. Even though he was a young man, he wanted to be at a Christian school. I said there were two guys. The other one went to public school, both high school and college, public school, state college. The public school guy learned evolution, gender theory, the racial roots of modern mathematics, right? Along with some good things, racial roots of modern mathematics, gender theory, macroevolution, along with some good things. And this same public school guy loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of his friends did not follow Christ. They were neat people, but they needed the Lord. Their lives, his friends, were in step with a lot of the godless things that they learned in school. His life, though, was not in step with the godless ideologies that they learned in school. He made a decisive and intentional break by God's grace with the godless life of his peers. He loved them, but he loved God, and his was a changed life. What about the other guy, the Christian school guy? His is a good story, too. He followed the Lord. He had a changed life as he walked by faith and repentance. Most of his peers, too, even from the Christian school, gave no evidence in the coming years of true gospel change. By the way, I spent part of my life, public Christian, it's very true. Most of my friends from Christian school not following the Lord. What's the point? If you think I'm sitting here this morning talking about education or advocating for one another, that is not my point. The point is this, Moses received a pagan education. Read the Bible. Moses received a pagan education. The discussion about education is a worthy discussion. It absolutely is a worthy discussion. But the point is this, he spurned sin and the fleeting pleasures of sin. Hebrews 11 he spurned sin and the fleeting pleasures of sin. He intentionally chose by the grace of God, having gone to Egyptian university, being trained in all of the pagan arts and sciences, he spurned sin and the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses, Moses, spurning sin, looking to the reward, seeing him who is invisible, bearing the reproach of Christ. And Hebrews calls us, to go outside the camp and to bear the reproach of our Savior who alone bore the wrath of God for sinners. Let's look at Moses as an example. But let's see his failures and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray may in particular for young people. Lord, we know that young people all around us today are giving in to the fleeting pleasures of sin. We are not naive that 70-year-olds and 10-year-olds are also in this world giving in to the fleeting pleasures of sin. Help us, Lord. Help us to spurn. Help us to look. 
Help us to see. Help us not only to see merely our lives in this present moment, but according to Colossians, would you set our minds on things above? Have mercy upon us, Lord. We pray for awakening and revival. Lord, move in us as a church and as families. Again, help us in this upcoming members meeting that we would follow you, the true shepherd of the church. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.